Congregation, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this evening to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61, and then afterwards we'll turn in our Forms and Prayers book to Lord's Day 12. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, and foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called priests of the Lord, They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring that the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. And then we'll turn to Lord's Day 12 in our Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 12 in our Heidelberg Catechism, which can be found on page 213 in the uh, Forms and Prayer book. Why is He called Christ? Meaning anointed. Because He has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Our only High Priest, who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of His body, and who continually intercedes for us before the Father. And our Eternal King, who governs us by His Word and Spirit, and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance He has won for us. Question 32, but why are you called a Christian? 
because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in His anointing. I am anointed to confess His name, to present myself to Him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. Blessed congregation, did you notice when we sang Psalm 133 these words, the anointing oil that consecrates for holy toil the servants of the Lord. David, as he authored Psalm 133, is making mention of the fact that there were certain men in Israel that would have been anointed with oil. That is, that they were set apart by that anointing for a specific task within the nation. David would have been well familiar with this idea. He was anointed twice in his life as king over Israel. Once he was anointed when he was but a shepherd boy by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, but then he was anointed a second time by the elders of Israel in 2 Samuel 5 when he officially took the office as king over Israel. But not only were kings anointed for their role, for their office in Israel, but there were three special offices in the Old Testament for which people were anointed. The prophets were anointed. The priests were anointed. And the kings were anointed. And we see this practice throughout the Old Testament. Aaron, in Leviticus 8, was anointed as priest. Elisha was anointed as prophet in 1 Kings 19. And we've already seen, as I mentioned, that David was anointed as king. But every once in a while, we will come across a character in the Bible who is not only anointed for one of those offices, but is anointed for multiple two or even three of these leadership positions. We might think of Abraham in Genesis 13, who after coming back from saving his uh, brother Lot, it says in Genesis 14, met a man named Melchizedek, who was both a priest and king of Salem. We might also think of Moses, who, though not anointed and not officially filling these roles, had these characteristics of a leader of God's people. He was a prophet to God's people and a priest in making sacrifices. Or think of David, who's both a king and a prophet. When we read of these men, we should recognize that these men are some of the greatest men in history. Anytime we come across someone in our Bible who holds two distinct offices, we should perk up 
This is a really important person. It's hard even for us to contextualize this because we don't have anything like this in our day. But it would be like somebody being the President of the United States and also a leader of one of the biggest universities in the country. You would say, wow, that is a great man. Or it would be like someone being the mayor of your city and also a pastor. You would tell other people about this person. You would bring it up to your children. I was there when so-and-so was president of the country and of the university. It's a remarkable thing to be in two leadership positions. And it doesn't happen that often. And when it does, we see the effects of the fall. It stretches us thin. We're not able to lead both peoples aright. And so we often say, when you're the President of the United States, that needs to be your singular focus. When you're a pastor, that needs to be your singular focus. Because we often neglect one for the other. But when we come to Lord's Day 12, the instructor points our eyes to something that should astound us this evening. That Jesus, in His incarnation, didn't come only to fill one office, or even just two offices, but that He he was anointed to fill all three offices of the Old Testament in His ministry. And the instructor says He came to perfectly fulfill them. He is our chief prophet, our high priest, our eternal king, complete, perfect execution and fulfillment of these offices. This is why we call him the Christ. You know that that's not Jesus' last name, right? He is called the Christ because He was anointed. Anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring whole, complete, and full salvation by fulfilling these three offices. That's our theme this evening. Jesus is anointed to bring full salvation. But then we also share in His anointing to offer complete service. Jesus is anointed to bring full salvation and we are anointed to bring full service. In your bulletin outline, I gave you four points. I'm going to simplify them this evening just to two points and those headings of prophet, priest, and king will serve as sub-points, but our two points simply are this, anointed as the Christ... And our sub-points are prophet, priest, and king. And then our second point, anointed as a Christian. Anointed as the Christ, and then anointed as a Christian. So we turn this evening, the subject of, our, of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 61, we see is the anointed servant. Who will come? 
And this anointed servant will come to Israel to redeem them from bondage. As we read Isaiah 61, I think it should be readily clear to each of us that this is about the Messiah. This is about a Christ figure. In fact, halfway through chapter 61, we see that it very clearly is the Lord speaking, for it says in verse 8, for I the Lord. It doesn't speak of an earthly character, though it may allude to one, maybe Cyrus, or the prophet Isaiah himself. But for generations, Christians and Jews alike have read Isaiah 61 and recognized that this is about a Messiah, a Christ figure, an anointed one. Christ, in fact, is the Greek word. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach, the Christ. Now, you don't have to take my word for it this evening that this is about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the best preacher, the best expositor that there ever was, was said to open to this passage in a synagogue in Nazareth and applied it entirely to Himself. If you have a Bible, flip with me to Luke chapter 4, where we are told that Jesus, after He was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, it says He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was His custom. In verse 17, because He was a rabbi, He was given the opportunity to preach a sermon in the synagogue and he rolls or he excuse me receives the scroll of the prophet Isaiah he found the place where it was written beginning in verse 18 Jesus reads the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the lord's favor And he sits down, which was what they did in the ancient days to preach their sermons. They didn't stand like I am. They would sit, and he says these words in verse 21. Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Jews, it says, when they heard Christ's sermon, they were indignant. They were filled with wrath. If you keep going in chapter 4, it even says that they sought to throw Him off of a cliff for what He said. Why? Because Jesus just preached a sermon and said, Isaiah is talking about Me. I am the Anointed One of Isaiah 61. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. But this was preached in his hometown. And you could imagine the questions on the people's mind. When were you anointed, Jesus? We weren't there at your anointing service. When was that oil poured on your head, like it says in Psalm 133, that ran down the beard of Aaron? We missed that invitation. And in some ways, they're right. There was no anointing of oil of Jesus. 
There was no traditional pouring of the oil over the, heads of, over the head of Christ. He wasn't anointed like Aaron was. Or like David was. Or like Elisha was. But if you flip back to chapter 3 of Luke, what does it say in verse 21? When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in a bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are My beloved Son, with You I am well pleased. The Heidelberg Catechism, if you look at question 12, doesn't say Christ was anointed with oil, but He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. There's a connection between chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Luke. Jesus was anointed with the Spirit. And in His first sermon, after His anointing with the Spirit, He tells them, I am the Messiah. I was anointed to be your Messiah. He was bapt- in His baptism. He was anointed as the, by the Holy Spirit. Now what was He anointed to do? Is the logical question. If we flip back to Isaiah chapter 61, we see that He is anointed first as a prophet. He was called first to be a prophet. We need to dispel this evening with the modern idea that a prophet's job was simply to foretell the future. But a prophet, generally speaking, was a spokesperson for God. The prophets would have been viewed in the Old Testament as Old Testament preachers. But what they preached was not the written Word of God, like I am a preacher here this evening, but what they would have preached was the Word of God as the Spirit of God revealed it to them. That's what the Catechism says. That they preached the revealed will of God. And the Catechism says of Jesus, our prophet, that He fully reveals to us the secret counsel and the will of God concerning our deliverance. He's a preacher of deliverance. And this is exactly what the anointed servant was anointed to do. Verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, look at this next line, to bring good news. To proclaim, going on in verse 1, liberty to the captives. The anointed servant, first and foremost, is anointed to be a preacher. Now, do you remember the context of the book of Isaiah? The first 39 chapters, the prophet has been telling Judah that judgment is coming. They had lain long in sin. They had forsaken the Lord their God. And so Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the superpower of the world, was coming to Judah and they would be exiled. 
39 chapters of judgment, judgment. We uh, in the United States don't know what it's like to have a superpower come against us, do we? But when the superpower comes, whether it's in the ancient world or it's today, the people feel that there's no hope for escape. We're, sa- we're sitting ducks, aren't we? We're not going to make it. We might as well give up. But look what Isaiah says in verse 1. Isaiah says, the anointed one is going to proclaim liberty, freedom, deliverance. That God's people will be delivered even from the worst of evils, even from the bleakest of circumstances, even from the depths of despair, there is liberty. In fact, this anointed one not only will proclaim liberty, but he is powerful to bring liberty. He will go, the prophet says in verse 1, to the prison of those who are bound And He will open the dungeons and set them free. This evening, in order to really capture the sense of this chapter, you need to put yourself in your mind in the dungeon. In captivity. In chains. And Isaiah is saying here, there is a hero. There is someone who will hear the weakest cry in the deepest dungeon. There is someone who has been anointed to save you. And you might say to me, well, pastor, they don't deserve salvation. Wasn't their exile because of their sins? But look at what the anointed prophet is preaching. Verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He is preaching that God is willing to be reconciled. That if Judah repents of her sin, he is willing to receive them by his grace. Because isn't that what favor means? His unmerited grace. And look with me at verse 1. Who the prophet is coming for. He's coming for the poor, the brokenhearted, and the captive. He has not come for the rich, for the perfect, for the mighty. He's come to bring the good news to you this evening. Maybe for some of you, you say, Pastor, I don't have to imagine being in a dungeon. I'm already there. I'm already in the chains of sin. I'm in the shackles of the hard times of life. I am captive to Satan. Are you bound in sin? In a captivity of depression? The darkness 
counsel of God is this, that those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. He has come to proclaim freedom, liberty to those in the darkest of dungeons. Congregation, simple application this evening, a simple application is that if Christ is our chief prophet, we should listen to Him when He speaks. There is freedom in His work for you. Secondly, He's anointed as priest. The second office that we need to look at this evening is the office of priest. And I think Matthew Henry is right when he says that the words, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, verse 1, speaks of His office of the priesthood. That Christ, as a prophet, His role was to preach to the people the will of God, but then the priest's role was then to lead people into the presence of God. You see, even though that Israel was God's elected people, they were, like we are, sinners. And Psalm 24 tells us that the only people who can be in the presence of God are those who have uh, hands that are free from sin, clean hands, pure hearts, and lips unstained. Those are the kind of people that God welcomes into His presence. So in order for Israel to dwell daily in the presence of God, they needed to have daily sins. Or excuse me, sacrifice for sins. And even with those sacrifices of the Old Testament, they only had a very limited access to the presence of God. Only one person, once a year, was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. The high priest, after atoning for his sins, after cleansing himself, if you will, with the blood of a bull, could once a year go into the manifest presence of God and have unhindered access and communion with Him. One thing that's often lost on us when we consider the teachings of the book of Leviticus or the teachings on the atonement is that we forget that these were a temporary covering. See, atonement means to cover but they couldn't cover forever. They couldn't cover eternally. Which is why the author of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. You see, when those sacrifices were offered, they knew that they weren't taking away their sins. But it covered their sins so that they could be in the presence of of God. Their usefulness is then is this. The usefulness of the sacrifices is that they pointed Israel to a real sacrifice that could eternally cover and atone for their sins. You see, in the New Testament, we have a great privilege that we can enjoy unhindered, unhindered, real and 
true communion with God simply by bowing our heads and in the name of Christ praying to God the Father. We are able to do this, the Catechism says, because our High Priest has eternally covered our sins. But notice how the Catechism says He does this. By the one sacrifice of His body. What separates Christ as High Priest from the High Priest of old is that He is both priest and sacrifice. He did not come for a tabernacle made with human hands. In Jesus' ministry, He was scarcely in the temple. Scarcely even in Jerusalem. But He came to enter into a heavenly tabernacle. He comes into that heavenly tabernacle not with the blood of an animal, but as Hebrews 9.12 says, He came once and for all with His own blood. And He pours His blood out in the presence of God. You see, we have to think of it like this. In Leviticus 16, we're told about the most important day in the Old Testament calendar, which was called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would slaughter a bull to atone for his sins, to cover temporarily his sins. And they would take one goat and he would take his hands and he would put them on the head of that goat. And he would confess his sins and Israel's sins and the priesthood's sins upon the head of that goat. He would take a knife and he would slaughter it. He would go into the Holy of Holies and pour out its blood. John Owen says when we need to think of Christ as, Christ as our priest and sacrifice, that on the cross, God the Father put His hands on God the Son and confessed, not confessed, but placed the sins of us all upon Christ. And Christ took His own blood and went into the presence of God and poured it out for you and for me. And just like a priest is supposed to do in that moment, the priest is supposed to take the hand of the person who sacrificed their animal and to lead them into the presence of God. Remember that on the cross, when Christ gave His last breath, It says the temple in the veil was torn in two. That the way to the living God was opened. Just like a priest, He took us by the hand and led us into the presence of God. That's what the prophet is saying when he says, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He has healed us from our sins and has led us into the presence of God. Our sins are no longer a barrier to communion with Christ. 
and with God. Brothers and sisters, another simple application. If Christ truly is our high priest, then we need to be in the presence of God. Be a people who are diligent to enjoy this blessing that for thousands of years only one person got to enjoy. We enjoy this evening, right now, in God's presence. Third and finally, Christ is anointed as King. The anointed servant has shown us God's will as a prophet. He has shown us the way to heaven as a priest. But the catechism points out something often missed in our understanding of the gospel. How do we stay saved? Here the instructor points us to Christ's role as king. He governs and guards us in the deliverance that he has won for us. Christ keeps his people, young and old, weak and strong, in the salvation that he has attained for them. In the Old Testament, the way that God governed and protected His people was with a literal king, or men like them. Kings, judges, and patriarchs all governed and guarded God's people. Here, Babylon is coming though. In chapter 61, they know that the throne will be torn down. That there will no longer be a king of Israel, a king of Judah. What about the office of king for these exiles? What about for us in the U.S.? Is there a king for us also who will govern and guard us? Well, note well here the catechism's instruction in question 31. Our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance He has won for us. His Word and Spirit. And if you look back at Luke chapter 4, verse 18, when Christ is quoting Isaiah 61, He only quotes one verse and a half. But in those verse and a half, He reads that the Spirit is resting upon Him and has called Him to preach the Word. You see, after this exile, Israel will not have a physical throne ever again. But when Christ reads these words in Isaiah 61 and He applies them to Himself, He is not only saying that I am a rabbi with a sermon in my heart, He is saying I'm the King of the Jews. Even without a physical throne. even though he had no crown, but a crown of thorns. But he told us in John 18 that his kingdom was not of this world. But he is our king because he governs and guards from heaven. One thing we see in ancient Israel was that when they had a good king, it made the people glad. Because they had someone in the highest authority, in the highest place, who they could trust. Who would not govern or lead them 
unwisely or to a place they shouldn't go. Congregation, it should fill our hearts with gladness this evening that we have a king who governs and guards us through his word and spirit and will never lead us awry. Our hearts should be glad that in the highest of authority, it is not you or it is not I who lead, but the perfect Messiah, the anointed one, sits on the throne of heaven to reveal to us his will for our lives. So Jesus Christ as our Messiah not only reveals to us the will of God for our lives, but he also leads us into the presence of God by the sacrifice of his body. And we are told that he will govern and guard us until we receive the inheritance of heaven. Quickly this evening, we want to look at this final question in Lord's Day 12 that we also share in the anointing as, as Christians. It's quite remarkable when we transition from question 31 where Christ has said to be ordained by God the Father and anointed by the Holy Spirit. But when the, question in, when the instructor in question 32 looks at us, he uses the same language. We too have been ordained to eternal life by God the Father. You also have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. The instructor says, by faith we share in His anointing. That's what it means to be a Christian. To hear of God's favor in the anointed servant of His grace and to confess Him. And do you know what happens to those who trust in Christ? who put their faith and their hope and their love in Christ. That's what the rest of Isaiah 61 is about. Those who trust in the anointed servant are transformed. That they are taken from the pit of despair. They're taken from captivity. From dungeons of desolation. And He changes their lives. Look at verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities. The devastations of many generations. That is, in the anointed servant. They will not be left in despair. Or left in the dungeons. But they will not only repossess what God has promised to them. But God will also restore what they have been given. The picture we're given in verse 4 is of Jews returning to a ruined land of their spiritual inheritance where everything is broken, but through the Spirit, everything is restored. Isaiah says even things that were formerly devastated Devastations of many generations. Things which they haven't been able to mend by themselves. That for generations have been broken down, rusting, useless. God says, in Christ, it is restored. In Christ, 
the brokenness of generations can be made right. They shall be restored. Look at verse 6. They shall be priests, but you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Through the anointed Savior, every single one of us will have uninhibited access to God. Remember that in the the Old Testament, only male priests from the tribe of Levi, high priests from the sons of Aaron, and only one of those sons could be in the presence of God. Don't miss what Isaiah is saying to you. In Christ, you are more privileged than the high priests of old whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're ordained as a pastor, elder, or a deacon, because you are a believer, you have access to the presence of God. One thing one commentator pointed out to me is notice what the prophet says in verse 5. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. And who is the they in verse 6 who shall speak of you as the ministers of our God? It is the foreigners. The foreigners, the people who aren't God's covenant people, will look at those who trust in Christ. And they will say, they're ministers, they're priests, they're people who have access to the presence of God. Here, we are being told that we will not only have access to God in Christ, but then we can share this access. We can evangelize. We can tell others about the way to God. That is when others present themselves, as the catechism says, as a living sacrifice of thanks. Other people will see. And other people will be led to Christ through you. And the rest of this chapter speaks of another reversal transformation, if you will. Even though Nebuchadnezzar will come and he will take this land from Judah, The prophet promises that one day they will be rulers again. Verse 5, strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Instead of them dominating you, you will be lord over them. That's what that's saying. Verse 6, you shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. Verse 9, their offspring shall be known among the nation and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them. And that they are an offspring that the Lord has blessed. That is that those who are humbled by their sins, who trust in Christ, God will exalt them over their enemies. They will be made kings, lords, rulers. This is a glorious picture. But remember how Judah was described to begin with. Verse 1, poor, brokenhearted, 
captives. You see, before you and I knew Christ, we could be described in the same way, couldn't we? But to follow Christ means there's a transformation. There's a restoration. We share in His anointing and we become, if you will, prophets who in our sin could not confess His name, but because by faith we can. By faith we can be a priest who presents ourselves to Him as a living Not a dead sacrifice of thanks. And by faith in His anointing, we can strive as kings with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life. It's as if Christ said in Luke chapter 4, I'm anointed. I'm the Messiah. But I've come to give you new life. Eternal life through my own death. You see, the center of chapter 61 is actually verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. And look at this. They shall have ever lasting joy. This speaks of the inheritance, not that they will receive physically in the land of Judah. We know that when they came back to the promised land, they were filled with shame, not a double portion. They were filled with contempt and anger and frustration. It it does not speak to our physical homes. It speaks to our heavenly home. To be with Christ. To reign with Christ. For all of eternity. That is your double portion. That is how God's people rejoice. That's how they have everlasting joy. Not in this earth but in the heavenly Canaan to come. I want to point out one more thing for you this evening. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus, when quoting Isaiah 61, He ends in the middle of verse 2. He ends with these words, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then He sits down. He doesn't continue on in verse 2 and read, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus stopped in the middle of verse 2 because He had come to bring God's grace. His time to bring vengeance had not yet come. His mission, if you will, on earth was to proclaim the favor and grace of God towards sinners. Let us be reminded this evening that Christ will come again. And that He will come in vengeance. This speaks to His second coming when He will come clothed in the blood of His enemies with a sword in His hand coming to conquer sin. To damn Satan. 
and his followers. But this, even today for you, my dear friend, who has not yet trusted in this anointed Savior, today is the day of God's favor. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Respond to Christ's promise of grace. Hear His proclamation of liberty. His declaration of freedom. It is true. We can testify this evening that it is true that those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. And there is transformation in life in Christ. Don't wait a moment longer. Trust in this anointed Savior. He alone offers salvation full and free. So are you in the pit of despair this evening? Are you shackled with heavy chains of sin and misery? Do you long for heaven? Jesus is willing to share His anointing oil with you. He is willing to send His Spirit upon you. He is willing to transform you from a sin-laden, poor captive of Babylon to a citizen of heaven. He has provided salvation full and free. All you must do now is fall on your knees. Embrace Him by faith and live a life for Him. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful God, we give You thanks that You have looked upon us, we who are but poor captives, captives to sin, and that, Lord, You have sent an anointed Savior for us. You have proclaimed liberty and freedom in Your Son. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for all of us here that we would embrace this with true faith by Your Holy Spirit. And that we would walk and live in the freedom and the liberty that You have provided for us in Christ. Thank You for the privilege of being anointed just as Your Son was anointed. For that we give You thanks. We, praise. we pray this all in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.